0: Have your Bibles go ahead and open them to first Timothy nearing the end here nearing the end of our series through the entire Bible taking one book at a time and uh, we enter into kind of a unique part of Paul's letters here which are letters written to individuals uh, and specifically we'll talk about it a little bit the letters written to uh, pastors so to, so to speak so um, as you're turning there, just say, I am delighted, overjoyed to have my parents uh, with us here this morning, John and Carol Lee. Um, if you've been listening to the sermons for uh, any length of time now, you've probably heard a lot about them, so the, uh, the legends um, are here. Um, my dad spent a lot of time uh, with illustrations as a preacher as I was growing up, embarrassing me. Um, but out of respect, I'm not going to do that to him this morning, but I will say this, um, it's been really exciting weekend because they got to come when our kids were doing all their various sporting events and, uh, every event they went to, um, on Friday and Saturday, um, our kids in some way set a personal record. So Sammy with his swimming and then Paxton, uh, playing basketball, um, yesterday. And I said, if you're lucky, I might set a personal record on Sunday with my sermon length, And there was some debate about whether that meant the shortest sermon or the longest sermon. So, to be determined. Uh, But let's look at 1 Timothy. And I want to start with chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. So, again, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing a letter to his disciple, his missionary partner, Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, um, which we can have confidence that all of it is profitable for us, <clears throat> for t- teaching and correcting and reproof and rebuking and training us in righteousness, that we would be complete and equipped for every good work. All of your word has been breathed out by you. And so I pray this morning... That in this uh, study through Timothy, which sometimes can can seem like more of the the technical details of church life, that we would realize what we are hearing is the breathed out word of God. And I pray it would have its effect to sanctify its hearers, uh, to save hearers who may not yet know you, and that all of us uh, would be transformed by your good and perfect word. So, Father, open our eyes that we would behold the many wondrous things you have prepared for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever stopped to uh, maybe maybe take a step back on a a Sunday morning or reflecting on the things that we do together in church uh, routinely and ask, why do we do the things that we do? Why does the pastor get up here and, and preach a sermon or... Uh, why, why does, as Chris did this morning, um, he stand up here as we do every Sunday and pray for all kinds of people, making supplications and thanksgivings? Um, why do we talk about being led by elders and having deacons that serve in the church? And, and wh- why do we take it so seriously about the kind of people they ought to be? I hope you understand Uh, if you've been around long enough here, that we don't just make these things up as we go. Uh, We are informed by the scriptures and we ought to be being informed and reformed by the scriptures uh, in everything that we do as we hear them and seek to obey them. So everything I've mentioned uh, in in that last little bit, you can actually find instruction for these things in Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus. And everything in it God intended for us to understand and to apply in order that we would grow up into Christ. He intended it for us, for our good. So who was Timothy? Well, uh, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but uh, Paul first met this young man by the name of Timothy uh, on one of his uh, later missionary journeys, his mission trips. Out west, Timothy was living uh, either in a city called Lystra or Derby. Uh, it's not very clear which one, but that's where Paul was when he met Timothy. And Paul was very impressed by Timothy's understanding of the Scriptures and his passion to obey them. Timothy had been discipled. We learn this later on in Second Timothy. He had been discipled by a faithful mother and grandmother who taught them, taught him the Word, and taught him as Paul says, how to be wise for salvation. For those of you who are the beneficiary of a godly mother or grandmother who taught you the word of God, can I get just an amen this morning, just to know? Amen. 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 Um, and how fitting is it that I have uh, my mom, Carol, before me, who raised me up in the discipline instruction of the Lord, uh, a sort of Eunice. Eunice being Timothy's mom, a Eunice to me, uh, and my father being a sort of Paul uh, to me, being a Timothy. It was from a very young age, probably even in my elementary school years, when I sensed that maybe uh, I would want to give my life to uh, this ministry someday. I always had a love and a passion for God's word, and I think. A lot of that is owing to the passion uh, that I saw in my parents. Well, anyway, Paul, what he did was he uh, grabbed hold of Timothy uh, because he wanted to train up a disciple who would be able to make other disciples who could take the work beyond places he could. And he took Timothy under his wing and made him a sort of pastor in training, as well as a mission partner that he could bring with him on some of his journeys. Now, if you know something about Paul, you know that his mission was to just keep taking the gospel further and further to the ends of the earth. So Paul was never going to stay very long in one particular city. His goal there was to get the church established, built up, and then leave it to faithful leaders who would be able to teach others. Also, that's 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. So at one point... Paul decided that he needed to send Timothy on to Ephesus to be with the church in Ephesus when Paul could no longer remain there. And he sent him to Ephesus specifically to continue the work of overseeing the church in that region and particularly um, to kind of sort through some of the false teaching and protect the church against some of the false doctrine that was beginning to come in. So for this reason, these two letters, along with Paul's letter to Titus, are often called the pastoral epistles, or the pastoral letters. These are letters written from a pastor, Paul, if you will, to other pastors, concerning how the church ought to conduct itself. I don't know about you, but I appreciate it, when an author tells us very clearly why he is telling us what he is telling us. A clear thesis from an author, I think, is a gift to its readers. We see this with the Gospel of John. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, Paul does a very similar thing here in his first letter to Timothy, and we just read it. He says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul, not knowing when he would be able to see Timothy again or be in Ephesus again, said that here's what I want you to know about how the church needs to conduct itself how the church ought to behave and that's why it is timeless not just for Timothy's context but it's timeless universal for all of us today this is how the church ought to go about conducting itself Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus are both going to serve this ultimate end how is the church to be the church how should the church be organized and led What is the church supposed to give the priority of its time to? How are we within the church supposed to relate to one another? Whether it be women to men, older to younger, younger to older, widows, pastors to other members of the body, members of the body to their pastors. This letter, these letters are immensely practical. And as with all of God's word, I believe that they are profitable for training us in righteousness making us complete, and equipping us for every good work. That's from 2 Timothy 3.16. So Center Baptist Church, I want you to know and love and embrace the pastoral epistles. I want you to be able to understand the instruction in these letters and be able to apply them as they are a sort of constitution for us as a church, it's very important that we understand the constitution of our society. This serves as a sort of constitution for us as a church. And if we don't ever reference our founding documents, we end up doing things our way rather than God's way. And when we do things our way rather than God's way, that's when we begin to get in really big trouble. But you should also remember that because this is also God's breathed out word, whether it's technical details or not, that in following these instructions and aligning our priorities with God's priorities in the church, we will find life in these words. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 19? In keeping God's commandments, there is great reward. There will be great reward if we keep what is written in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. Now, often what I see is a a tendency in particularly reading these letters to try to pull out those sort of inspirational nuggets, look for those things that can kind of get me through my individual personal trial for for the day, but then cast aside or gloss over much of the other parts that we say, Eh, yeah, I don't think that's for me. I think that's for pastors or church leaders or, or other people. Sometimes we can see these parts of Scripture as uh, the nuts and bolts, the nuts and bolts that are meant for someone else to kind of figure out and work through, but that's not really meant for me. But I, as your pastor, one of your pastors here, I hope that you will embrace and grow to love the nuts and bolts Of Scripture, because they're not really just nuts and bolts. They are God's revelation for what makes a healthy church. one of the ways I could put it would be like this, a church that is well-ordered is a church that is most able to faithfully bear witness to the salvation of Jesus Christ. And a church that is well-ordered is a church that is most positioned to fulfill its calling as a pillar and buttress of truth. We all want to be that, right? We want to be that. So we care about what Paul tells Timothy about how the church ought to be. So let's consider this morning how we ought to behave ourselves. The title of this sermon is, Behave Yourself. Church, behave yourself. Let's consider how we ought to do this in order that we would be the most healthy body that we can be. The most effective witness for Christ, that we can be, and a pillar and buttress of truth. And then individually, I want you to be asking yourself if this is how the church ought to behave, am I rowing in the same direction? Or am I dead weight? Or am I even maybe a counter force against this pillar and buttress of truth? So I have four points this morning that all speak to this idea of what a healthy church is to do or to be. And the first is very simple. A healthy church is a church that prays together. A healthy church is a praying church. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. What does Paul say? First of all, in other words, of first priority, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire that then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. First of all, church, how ought you to conduct yourselves? By praying, by making supplications, by making thanksgivings for all kinds of people. Not just for one another, but for kings and for people who occupy positions in high places. And what is the ultimate aim of these prayers? In order that in praying for these kings and people in high places, we would be able to have the freedom to continue to spread the message of Jesus Christ. To spread the message of God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of truth, the kind of prayer that Paul is talking about here is a very uh, specific, in some ways, evangelistic, fervent type of prayer for the lost. It's a prayer that, that puts the gospel on display because it expresses a confidence that only God is able to save. And inasmuch as we care about the people around us, our greatest concern for them is that they would reach. Salvation that they would come to know the love of their Savior, Jesus Christ. It also puts the gospel on display because every time we come together in prayer, we are acknowledging together that we have one mediator between us and God, who is the man, Jesus Christ. And the reason why that puts the gospel on display is because it acknowledges we were sinners, we were unholy, and God is holy, and there is this great separation between us. But because Christ came to this earth and died on the cross for our sins, we can now have holy fellowship with God. This type of prayer is a prayer that puts the gospel on display in every way. And we see it's not just Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, you should be praying. And we do take this quite literally here, by the way. The pastor gets up here, a pastor gets up here every Sunday and we make, Chris even said the word this morning, supplications and prayers and thanksgiving. And we pray for our leaders and we pray, if you notice, for all kinds of people. But notice he also says, in every place, here's the goal, in every place, The men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, meaning basically the men should be dedicated and by extension, the whole church should be dedicated to coming together and praying together with a clean conscience before God, not squabbling about little things here and there, but coming together with holy hands to pray I think we can often get so far ahead of ourselves, particularly in American fast-paced, build-the-biggest-business-you-can society. We often can begin to think that the church, in order to survive or to be successful, has to have this program or that program or this marketing technique or this kind of music atmosphere or this hospitality team. They have to look a certain way, but it's really so much simpler to that than that. And I thank God that it is so much simpler than that. Be devoted, first of all, to prayer. Be devoted, first of all, to the Word of God. Be devoted to. Prayer and the word of God. And let me say, I, because of my personality, I thank God for all these clear instructions that make it so much simpler in the scriptures because I am not a business CEO. I am not a master marketer. Um, I don't have the most creative ideas for how we can reach our community, but I pray for God's wisdom. But he says, Davy, just pray and urge your church to continue on in that endeavor, and I will show the next thing that I would have you do. What was the early church doing before Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church of God, tongues of fire, mighty rushing wind? What were they doing? They weren't strategizing on how are we going to reach the world? What's the plan we got to put together? They were simply in a room together, devoted to prayer, waiting on God to act. What were they doing after Peter preached his amazing sermon that exploded the church into existence in the second chapter of Acts? What does it say they were doing after the 3,000 were added to their number that day? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread. They were devoted to prayer. And if you think about it, you can go all throughout church history and you can trace back that prayer meetings have been the impetus for every modern missionary movement from Antioch to London to America. Prayer meetings are what George Mueller attributed the establishment of a ministry that went to thousands of orphans and thousands of children who would come to know Christ through it all throughout England. It's what William Carey and Andrew Fuller attribute to the formation of a missionary society that has basically inspired every other mission organization that you know about today and brought the gospel to hundreds of thousands, millions of unreached, starting in India and beyond. In fact, you know, I say this from time to time, that every single one of you who professes Christ today, who is sitting in the pew every single one of you today is sitting here because of the fruit of faithful prayers and countless concerts of prayer within the church i was inspired recently and reminded of just how important prayer is in the church i mentioned last week how i was at the the National Conference for Converge, and I was able to see one of our our missionaries um, that we had sent out when I was at Overland Hills uh, to Togo. And they had this goal back in 2009 that they wanted to reach, or they wanted to plant 100 uh, gospel churches in these unreached people groups uh, within Togo. And and so this very ambitious goal, 100 churches by 2026. They've already planted uh, 29. Uh, and in fact, I love the simplicity of it because the, the, the hub church of it all in the capital there in Togo, um, as soon as somebody is trained up enough to be able to handle the word confidently, they just know, okay, I guess it's my turn to go out and plant another church. But one of the things that the missionary Josh Freeman said in passing was, he's like, oh, you know, like one of the the... the reasons for the success, or I, I can't remember how he worded it, but when somebody's asking, like, how do you do this? How do you? He's like, well, they, they're really committed to prayer. It's like it's not uncommon for them to just have 24-hour prayer meetings. Uh, when they have a need or when they want to plant another church, they'll just come together and they'll just pray and they'll keep praying. And often it goes for 24 hours uh, and beyond. And so it, it got me, it was, obviously it was convicting, it was inspiring. At the same time, but I began to think of all the hindrances here in America and the way that we are structured that just is, it seems to want to push corporate prayer out of the church. It's something we really have to uh, fight against. And so I wanted to just take some time this morning um, to maybe urge us, uh, give us another uh, push, another strong encouragement. We have things that we have we have set up the ways that we facilitate corporate prayer in the church. One of those being the fact that we will stand up here and, and pray uh, and invite you in to pray with us during the worship service. But we gather once a month for corporate prayer meetings, and uh, I know we're busy. And this is uh, I hope it's not a browbeating sermon, but I hope <laughs> I hope you're convicted by the fact that we are weak. In prayer, church, we're really weak in prayer. I think we would come to a million other types of events before we'd come to something with the title prayer meeting. But we come together and pray. We have sweet hours of prayer. We had a sweet hour of prayer just um, this past week, I think it was. We have a prayer guide. You're always welcome to grab one of these down in the fellowship hall. It shows um, all the people in our church, the members and the regular attenders, so we can be mindful to pray for one another. And then a list of kind of prayer needs that we can be praying for as a church. And most recently, um, I added this this uh, Center Baptist Church prayer circle, which is just a way to think through prayer, uh, beginning with ourselves and our personal walk with God, praying for our family, then out towards the church, and then praying for our community, praying for the nation, and then praying for the nations. But I don't really know how else to say this, um, and and I would encourage you to gather in care groups as you are able as well, because we're making that a pillar of our care groups in prayer. But let me just say, church, we need to pray more together. (laughs) Write down how that's gonna look in your life, how you can be rowing in the same direction with us, but we are weak in prayer. We just need to pray more. First of all, Paul says, be devoted to prayer. Another thing that he says about a healthy church, how the church ought to behave itself, conduct itself, is throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, he tells us that a healthy church is a church that is ordered according to God's design. A church that is ordered according to God's design. In the pastoral letters, we have various instructions about selecting church leaders The different offices in the church, church finances, you know, it actually talks about church finances in here. The different ministries of men and women within the church, how we are to care for widows and who is a widow. Like what, it's not just somebody who's lost their husband, there's a specific uh, uh, way of thinking through how are we to provide for widows. Um, Even instructions for slaves and masters, which We had a whole. We could spend a whole sermon going into that, but also instructions for how the wealthy—not to condemn wealth, but how the wealthy are to behave themselves within the church. In the membership class, uh, I have one lesson that is kind of devoted to what makes a church a church. In fact, I just kind of went through this with the youth group um, last Sunday. But one of the questions or the, the scenarios that I will give is, I'll say, you know, you're meeting on a Friday night in this. Bible study and your friends from the neighborhood come over and you gather for some snacks and you read the word together, you pray and you dismiss. And I'll say, is this a church? And uh, a lot of times people will say, well, yeah, it's a church, you know, wherever two or more are gathered then there is a church. But then I'll say, if, if this church is to then faithfully, if you're calling yourselves the church and you're to faithfully live out what you are called to in the New Testament, are you doing these things at your Friday night Bible study? I, and I love any type of Bible study. Anytime somebody's getting together to study the word, that's great. But what makes the church a church? And one of the, often one of the first observations, the youth came up with this um, last week is, well, if we're going to call ourselves a church, there needs to be some understanding of who is the church. Uh, and if we're going to say, who is the church? We need to have some understanding of who, who's a leader, who can teach. And are they even qualified to teach Uh, Because the scriptures lay out very clearly qualifications for who are to be teachers within the church. Who are to make decisions? How is the church supposed to make decisions together? Who is the one the scriptures call to be accountable for the souls that God has entrusted to them? And so one of the first observations we can make related to this in the pastoral epistles is this. A healthy church... Is a church that is led by healthy leaders. Healthy church is a church that is led by healthy leaders. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. In your Bibles, the heading may say uh, qualifications for overseers um, or qualifications for elders. Um, That word overseer is where we get the word bishop. We don't really use the word bishop, uh, but it's somebody who is taking care to oversee the church. And it's synonymous, you, I can point this out in other places in the scripture, it's synonymous with a pastor or an elder or a shepherd. And he says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, that, that literally states a one woman man, and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we have these qualifications. Uh, if you notice, the bulk of them being character qualifications for those who are to oversee, those who are to pastor, those who are to shepherd the church. And then it's followed by qualifications by deacons, which really aren't that different it's simply one thing that's, that's, that's different from overseers and deacons, and that is the necessary ability to teach. Deacons, it says, uh, it's not like they must not understand the Scriptures. It says they must uh, hold the mystery of the faith. In a good uh, verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, which means they must have a clear and accurate understanding of the gospel. But here we see, who is Timothy to go about appointing, selecting as leaders in the church, men who are above reproach and can confidently teach the word of God and are able to identify and root out, refute false teaching. That was one of the biggest problems facing the church. Somebody who could guard the good deposit entrusted to them and protect the church against the infiltration of false teaching. And it's in, 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 talking about these different ways that the church is to be organized and led, that we also come across these very unpopular things. Uh, Again, it would probably take me at least an hour to kind of flesh out how and why. Uh, But it's also the reason why we are led by male pastors. Paul tells Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And, and it's not my conviction to be this way because I want to be somehow unjust or deny equality to women. I don't believe women are inferior in any way, but it's because God has laid out his instruction, I believe, in a very plain way that requires universal application. Because he says in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, he doesn't just say because of the cultural context, he says, For Adam was formed first. Then Eve, there is an order to his creation. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, the fact that women will be saved through childbearing, we're going to have to talk about that in another, probably won't ever be a sermon. But I I do have a way of explaining that, but we can't go into it right now. But I want you to understand that the, the reason why we do the things that we do in the church is because we feel bound by the word of God. If God... Says, I do not permit this, then I think we should take a very strong look and say, okay, I, I dare not cross a threshold that God says, I do not permit this kind of, of thing. So we have uh, elders, we have deacons in this church, deacons who are servants. They hold an office as a, a particular servant in the church who again is above reproach and holds the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. So if you think about... Um, Jorge, or you think about Jeff West, it's not just because they are responsible for the facilities or responsible for getting the building set up. These are men we can point to and say, you can follow them as they follow Christ. And that should be true of everyone that we appoint as leaders. So you church have a very important role in bringing those people into leadership, appointing them, nominating them. All right, for the sake of time, other things about, that Paul gives us for how to organize the church, how we are to be set up, um, a lot of it has to do with how we are to care for one another. And so you also get instructions in chapter five on how we are to honor widows. It's the reason why we have a deaconess team who takes care of those who are widows here within the church. He talks about how we are to honor elders, and pastors. Now, this is not a comfortable thing again for me to say from the pulpit and to say from the place of being on the paid staff of this church. But in chapter five, verse 17, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So speaking from, a, let's say, removing myself from being a pastor here for just a couple seconds, let me say it is a good thing to be able to provide in as much as a church can for somebody who can devote their full time to the preaching of God's word. And I like to take opportunities like this to say thank you. Thank you for allowing me to do that. And it is a joy and a, an extreme joy and a privilege to be able to do that. Again, we don't have time for everything in here, but one more thing that he addresses is um, instruction to the wealthy. He tells them, if, if you're rich, it's not being rich that is evil. It's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. And he says it's a snare and a, a, a trap and a snare of the devil to fall in love with money. But he doesn't say, hey, if you're rich and you're wealthy and you find yourself in that place within the church, it doesn't mean you have to go be poor immediately for the sake of Christ. He says, rather, be rich in good works. Acknowledge that everything you have, whether you're rich or poor, has give, been given to you by God. And therefore, use it in a way that is going to bring glory to God and build up His church. There's so much more in here, but let me summarize it in this way. God has designed the church. God has designed the church. I didn't design the church. You didn't design the church. He has designed it, and he cares about the way we do church. We don't get to say, well, I think we should do it this way when God has said clearly something otherwise. He has revealed to us and instructed us on his design for the church And that doesn't mean there won't be a diversity in the way certain churches apply that, but all churches, if they're committed to Scripture, should be seeking to apply His Word to how the church is the church. We must seek to conform to His Word in every way that we know how. Number three, a healthy church contends for the gospel. A healthy church contends for the gospel. And really, I think this would probably be the overarching one. It just happens to be three in the order that we're we're coming through the, the book of Timothy here. But a healthy church contends, guards, fights for the gospel to remain the center of everything it does. This is very common language in the New Testament letters. He says things like, Chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Or in 2 Timothy 1.14, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Or in the letter, a Jude's letter, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So much of Paul's charge to Timothy is about guarding the church against false doctrine. In fact, if you consider the other major uh, components of church health that we've already talked about, prayer. Trustworthy leaders and teachers who are above reproach, even the instruction for widows and for the wealthy, which discourage idleness, all of these are really serving the end of fortifying the church against a vulnerability to false teaching. Paul told the Ephesian elders before he left them in Acts chapter 20, he said, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You know, it's so easy to ruin a church with false teaching. Just the slightest taking our eye off of Jesus Christ, or our slightest slightest taking our eye off of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether that be, and you see this in the New Testament, a drift into legalism, which denies the grace of Christ and and makes outward appearances to overshadow the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Christ. Or whether that be into licentiousness, which denies the power of the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. Whether it be a church who decides that they want to become just another social organization that does good things for society, but with a message drained of its gospel power a sort of social gospel, or whether it be a prosperity gospel where spiritual blessings get confused with material wealth, or whether it be just a church that loves its doctrine and its theology so much but has become devoid of love and compassion. But Paul tells Timothy this in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The aim of our doctrine, the aim of our teaching should produce in us a greater love. It should produce in us a greater desire for holiness, a greater desire to be like Christ. And it should not have anything to do with our personal gain, puffing ourselves up, whether with knowledge or with wealth or making our lives more comfortable. The aim of our message is love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then he says this in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Boom, there is our message right there. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and Paul says of whom I am the foremost only for the grace of God do I have salvation in Christ? He says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God has shown his mercy to all of us. This is Revealed to us in the message of the gospel. And when our ministry, whatever your ministry here in the church is, when it is such, it reveals Jesus' perfect love and patience to save sinners and to give them eternal life. So, Timothy, he says, and I would say by extension to you, church, today, in chapter 4, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I mean, just say this, If you ever come to me like... On a Sunday morning, or at a Bible study, and you say, "Hey, have you heard about this new like thing that's going around? This new best-selling book, or uh, you know about these one people over here, or this church—they're doing this one thing." I'm pretty much just going to ask you: Is that causing you to love Jesus more? Is that producing in you a greater desire for holiness? Is that leading you to a greater desire to see your neighbors and your loved ones and your family come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior? And if the answer is no, no, and no, or no to any one of them, I'll say no not worth it. Keep your eyes fixed on the gospel of Christ. At least don't get your, don't get wrapped around the axle about whatever that is. We see this in closing in in chapter 4 that I just read. It leads into the next point. Uh, We have to keep our doctrine straight. We have to keep our teaching straight. But also this. A healthy church is a church that is ever growing in godliness. That word meaning reverence for God, acknowledging God in everything we do. A healthy church is ever growing in godliness. How many of you know that you need to take care of your bodies? How many of you know you need to take care of your bodies a little more? That's me, that's me. Exercise better, eat better. Some of us probably devote a good bit of time to doing this, going to the gym or eating right or or counting our calories. But Paul tells Timothy, bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I've been uh, visiting Marines and I've been telling them this a lot lately. You guys work out like banshees. You are so good about caring for your physical body, at least in terms of exercise, because you know how important it is to stay fit for the battle, right? It's a part of your culture. How much more then should you be training your soul? If we're not growing in godliness, we are in danger of spiritual apathy. Those muscles are going to get weak real fast if we're not growing in godliness. So Paul tells Timothy, again, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He says, command, this is chapter 4, verse 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He says, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourselves in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Set the example in these things. Keep your life and your doctrine in check. And by doing so, you will save those to whom you preach this message. Friends, you know, there are plenty of non-doctrinal things that will destroy the witness of a church. You can love your doctrine till the cows come home. I have no idea what that means. That you can love your doctrine and your theology so much. There are plenty of non-doctrinal things that will destroy the witness of the church. There's a proverb that says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. It's the same way without a church with, with a church. Same way with a church. How essential is it for us to be pursuing godliness? One of the threads running throughout these epistles is to teach a doctrine that accords with godliness and then to pursue a godliness that is in accordance with the doctrine that you profess. And Paul puts it like this. Timothy, keep a watch on your life and your doctrine. Pursue righteousness And godliness, and you will keep the gospel message, he says, unstained and free from reproach. How many of you know of situations where the gospel reproach was brought to the gospel because of something stupid that a leader did in the church? It says something, I think, that of all the qualifications listed in chapter 3 for an overseer and a deacon, all but two have to do with godly character. All but two have to do with godliness it tells me something that he tells Timothy at the end of his letter here set the example in speech conduct love faith and purity and friends lest you think this is only for a pastor if he is to set the example in these things what does that mean for us we are to follow that example we are to set the example for others in speech and conduct and faith and purity You know, the evil one wants to take the focus off of Christ any way that he can. And in doing so, he wants to to rob us of being able to take hold of that which is truly life. That's what Paul says. We want to take hold of that which is truly life, life in Christ. The evil one has a different agenda. He wants to take our focus off of Christ. But church, if we will behave ourselves, if we will conduct ourselves the way that God has laid out here and throughout the rest of Scripture We can and will persevere and know the surpassing life that he has given us in Christ Jesus. So let me just urge you in closing, pray. And let's come together and pray and let's pray more often and let's rededicate ourselves to prayer. Let's be a church that is submitted to God's order and God's design for his church. Let's be a church that is ever contending for the gospel and seeking to keep the gospel at the center of all things. And let's be a church that is ever pursuing godliness together. Church, behave yourselves. Behave yourselves as a church that bears the name of a pillar and buttress of truth.